Hey friends, it's DGS on DHP. This is the last episode of 2021. Thanks for sticking with us over this last year. And uh, we have a lot of fun things planned for 2022. Always love to get your feedback. Today is Michael Lawrence's talk on what is the gospel as part of our evangelism series. It was recorded on a Sunday night a few weeks ago. Even if you listened to it or you were there, uh, by listening to it again, I know that you will be helped. So I hope you enjoy and happy new year. See you next year. Okay, so I've got my um, uh, my Mr. Rogers sweater on, um, and and that's that's because we're we're, we're going to start by by playing a little game of pretend, like imagine. Uh, I'm, I'm going to want you. I'm going to assign you something, uh, but this is not in the spirit of Mr. Rogers. This this little game of pretend we're going to play is more in the spirit of C.S. Lewis, because here's here's the thing. This is what I, I want you to imagine. You are a diabolical agent, okay? And you've been assigned the mission to stop Christianity. I just want you to take a moment in this little pretend world of ours and imagine how would you do it? What what, what would be your number one strategy for stopping Christianity? All right, you got it in your head? I imagine maybe some of you decided, I I know what I'll do. I will will focus my energy on tempting high-profile Christian leaders around the world into moral failure. Do anybody think of that? Anybody raise your hand? Do anybody think about tempting people into moral failure? Leaders that would discourage other Christians? I think that's a strategy that would come to mind. Or or maybe, maybe you thought, yeah, I need, I need to get people to be skeptical. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fund science research, and I'm going to fund the, the development of public school curriculums that are, that are going to explain the world without any reference to God whatsoever. And so it'll just become increasingly difficult for people to even think about God. That, that might be a good strategy. Or, or maybe you're, you're more the brute force type. And the strategy you came up with was just like persecution. I'm, I'm going to get governments and all sorts of people sort of riled up against Christians. I'm going to try to foment as much persecution as I can so that I can discourage Christians, drive them underground, get them to stop talking about Jesus. I think all of those strategies might be helpful. So, some of them might actually have some effect but, but I think if that was your strategy and you were reporting to your superior, this is my strategy for stopping Christianity's tracks, I think Satan would fire you. I think he would say, no, you have not been paying attention. You see, Satan, who I, I presumably is a lot smarter than us, knew from the beginning what the only effective strategy would be. And he, he tips his hand right away, right at the very start. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, what does Satan say? He says, did God really say, 
you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say that? See, see, right away, Satan knew that the only effective strategy that he had against God was to go after God's word. Presumably, he'd been paying attention and he'd been watching what, what God had been doing. God had been speaking and like the cosmos came into existence. God had been speaking these powerful words and like people came into existence and life began. He knew that God's word brings life. And so Satan's very first words, the very beginning of his strategy was to call into question and to distort God's word. Now, a lot happens. Millennia pass. All sorts of things change between Genesis chapter 3 and, and when Jesus shows up on the scene. But the one thing that doesn't change is Satan's strategy. You, you can almost draw a straight line from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, to Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. F feel free to turn there. We're just going to look at that one verse briefly. While you're turning there, I'll, I'll set the scene. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and Jesus has then promised that on Peter and on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. They're not going to be able to overpower it. And, and then the very next thing that happens is Jesus begins to explain how this is going to happen, that, that it was going to be necessary for him to be rejected and killed and raised on the third day. And Peter's response comes in verse 22 of chapter 16. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But in that moment, Jesus understood who was talking to him. And you see Jesus' reply, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Last week, uh, Todd Miles, in, in his talk on evangelism, what is evangelism and the goal of evangelism, he, he told us that evangelism is the persuasive proclamation of a message the good news that Jesus is Lord, that, that he died and rose again in order to defeat Satan and reconcile us to God as we repent and believe in that message. So if you're Satan, and thankfully you're not, but if you, if you were, and you know you've been defeated, you, you, you know that, that Jesus has, has done what he said he was going to do, how are you going to stop Christianity? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to try to stop that message from spreading. And of course, if you can't stop it from spreading, you're going to try and change the message. And, and if, if you can't change the message, then you're going to try to like scramble the message. And if you can't scramble the message, then you're going to try to reinterpret the message. And if you can't reinterpret the message, you're going to try to dilute the message. And if you can't dilute the message, then at least you're going to try to distract us all from the message. So that even though we believe it, we don't pay much attention to it. In other words, if this news that Todd talked to us about last week, if this message 
is the difference between salvation and damnation. Don't you think that this news will be the number one target that all the powers of hell and our own sinful flesh will aim at and try to stop? This this is the main idea that I want to try to convince you guys about tonight, right? We'll we'll put it on the screen, and that'll be helpful because I didn't write it in my notes. We need to know the gospel, because it's the difference between salvation and damnation, and therefore the number one target of the enemy. You are not the enemy's number one target. I am not the enemy's number one target. The number one target of the enemy is the message of the gospel itself. Satan doesn't need pastors to fail morally or Christians to be discouraged through persecution or or churches to be shut down by hostile governments if he can simply make sure that the gospel that we're proclaiming and sharing and witnessing about isn't really the gospel, isn't the whole gospel, isn't the true gospel. Because only the gospel saves. No other message does it. This is why we need to know the gospel. This is why we need to know what the message of good news is that actually saves people. So what I'm going to do with the rest of our time tonight is consider what that message is. Now I'm going to start by quickly reviewing what the message isn't. So I've only got two points tonight. What the gospel isn't. And, and what the gospel is, and what the gospel is actually has two parts, but I've got a really complicated outline that'll come up on the screen, and you'll be able to follow. All right, so what the gospel isn't. It? The go- there, there are a number of messages out there that, that we can share, and perhaps think that we've shared the good news, but in fact, we haven't. The, the gospel is not your testimony. The gospel is not your testimony. Now, many of us have learned how to share our testimony, the the story of how we came to faith in Christ. And I think that's a really important thing to learn. It's really important to learn how to share your testimony. There's a real important place for sharing our testimonies. Honestly, it's one of the main ways I think that people can begin to make sense of the implications of the gospel for their lives. As, as they hear you talk about the implications of it in, in your own life, it's a powerful way to build connection with people. But my testimony is a message about me. It is not a message about Jesus. Now, again, it's not an insignificant message, but let's be clear on what it is. My testimony is a story about, about me and what God has done for me and how I came to believe what I came to believe. But we need to remember, especially these days, and in our day and age, it runs the risk of playing into that postmodern mindset that says, that's wonderful. That, that's your truth, and I'm, I'm, so gl- I'm so glad your truth works for you. But it's not my truth. So, so we need to know how to share our testimony. We need to be alert to those chances to, to use it for the sake of the gospel. But we need to remember that, that our testimony is not the same thing as the gospel. And if all I've shared is my testimony, I very well may not have shared the gospel. Now, a second thing that the gospel isn't, the gospel is not apologetics. 
some of us are really into apologetics. Some of us have a real mind for that. And some, for some of us, it actually really scares us. We stay as far away from apologetics as possible. And actually, it's the fear that we'll get into an apologetic conversation, maybe more than anything else, that keeps us from sharing the gospel in the first place because we're afraid we're going to get asked a question or be confronted with an objection that, that we don't know how to answer. But for, for those of you that are out there that are really into apologetics, uh, there are all sorts of benefits that come from being able to talk about apologetics. There is an important place in our conversations for, for addressing the objections that people might have. And they've got all, all sorts of objections, right? I mean, we, we might find ourselves needing to speak to the evidence for the, the existence of God or, or creation, special creation, or, or the resurrection, the evidence for an empty tomb. We, we might find ourselves being asked to, to address the, the problem of evil, or, or the possibility of a, of a virgin birth. All of those have their place. All of those can be very important at a, at a certain point in evangelistic relationships and conversations. But apologetics are not the good news about what God has done. If you, if you stop and you think about it for a moment, what, 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 what is an apologetic conversation? Apologetics are all about responding to the agenda that doubt and skepticism has set. It's, it's actually somebody, somebody else's conversation. It, it's not primarily the conversation that God wants to have through the message of the gospel. It's the conversation that doubt wants to have. It's the conversation that skepticism and unbelief wants to have. And, you know, we need to have it. We need to be prepared to have it. But it's not the same thing as communicating the message, the conversation that God wants to speak in the gospel itself. So, so the gospel is not my testimony. The gospel is not apologetics. Third, the gospel is not the benefits of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking to a bunch of Christians. We know, we really know, there are all sorts of really good things that come as a result of the gospel. When we come to Christ in the gospel, all of a sudden we find purpose and meaning in our lives. Many of us found freedom from addictions, and we all find freedom from, from slavery to, to sin. We're given the, the hope of, of heaven and the, the new creation. But the good news that saves is not the message that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and if you trust him, you can have all these good things. That's not the gospel. But, but it's very easy to confuse the gospel with the benefits of the gospel. When we do, when we confuse the gospel with the benefits of the gospel, I'm afraid that oftentimes we end up in a kind of soft sell white bread, prosperity, gospel, light, evangelism. Who does not want to be happy? <laughs> do you know anybody who does not want to be happy? You know people that struggle to be happy. But do you know anybody who doesn't want to be happy? Who that's married doesn't want to have a better marriage? Who that has kids doesn't want to have a more peaceful home life? Who doesn't want to have meaning and purpose in their lives? 
Everybody I know wants those things. But that doesn't mean that they want Jesus. The problem, of course, when we present the gospel and the promise of the gospel in terms of the benefits of the gospel, the problem is, and again, I'm talking to a bunch of Christians, and some of you have been following Christ for a while now, you know God doesn't actually promise all of those things in the gospel. And when we sell the gospel based on the benefits of the gospel, I'm, a, I'm afraid we set people up to have all sorts of doubts, all sorts of struggles, when some of those benefits don't pan out the way they thought they were supposed to. So we need to be clear on what the gospel is not. Because when we present something as the gospel, which isn't the gospel, even if it's a really good thing, do you know what happens? People don't get saved. People don't get saved. So there, there, there are many reasons why we might be tempted to think, having done one of these other things, that we've actually shared the gospel. Maybe we've been taught that way. Maybe we are sort of given in that direction. We kind of like talking about some of these other things. And again, let me just say, there's a place for all of it. But none of that that I just went through is the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, here's the second point. What is the gospel? Let's, let's, uh, here, here's how Todd articulated it last week. It's kind of long, so we're going to put it on the screen. Here was Todd's definition. The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he has died for sin to reconcile us to God and defeat the devil thereby ushering in the kingdom of God. It, that is the gospel message, includes the explanation of how Christ died for sin and how one can be reconciled, namely through repentance and faith in Christ. Now, we'll leave that up there for a minute. That's not the only way you could describe, uh, I think, biblically and faithfully the gospel, but that's the way Todd described it last week, so I thought we would just stick with it because I think it's pretty good. It is a message that Jesus Christ is Lord that he's died for sin to reconcile us to God and defeat the devil, thereby, thereby ushering in the kingdom of God. It includes the explanation of how Christ died for sin and how one can be reconciled, namely through repentance and faith in Christ. Now, that's a long statement. Actually, combined in that one statement are two different ways that the Bible talks about the gospel. Now, I've described this elsewhere in, in my book on biblical theology. I talked about the gospel as biblical theology tells the gospel. And then I've talked about the gospel as systematic theology tells the gospel. Matt Chandler, in that, that little book, Explicit Gospel, which somebody, somebody got it over, over there, um, he talks about it um, as the gospel in the air and the gospel on the ground. The, the, the big picture gospel and the boots on the ground, kind of personal in your face gospel. Both are true. Both are necessary. But I think it's really important to understand how these two different ways of talking about the gospel from the Bible's perspective, how these two different ways relate. Because by itself, the biblical theology gospel doesn't save anyone. On the other hand, while the systematic theology, the, the gospel on the ground, saves, when it's cut off from the context of the larger story, the gospel in the air, 
the biblical theology gospel, when it's cut off from that larger story, it doesn't make much sense. And it runs the risk of becoming a very privatized experience that's all about me and Jesus, that increasingly is all about me, that makes me the point of it all. And whenever I become the point of it all, bad things happen. Like that, just ask my wife. When I become the point, like good things don't happen, not in my life or the lives of people around me, okay? So I want to look at these two different ways of thinking about the gospel, the, the, the gospel as biblical theology tells it, and the gospel as systematic theology tells it, and think about how the two relate so that we are very clear on what the gospel is. So we're going to look first at the cosmic gospel of biblical theology. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we read, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news, that is the gospel, of God. And here's what he proclaimed. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, that is the gospel. So here's the way that the biblical theology, sort of this gospel in the air, talks about gospel. The, good, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord, that, that, that he's the king, and through his life, and death and resurrection, he has actually brought the kingdom of God. It has entered into time and space. Now, the kingdom of God is not a, a place. It's not a, a realm that has geographical boundaries. Uh, the, the way the Bible talks about the kingdom of God that Jesus brought is it is a reign. It is the saving power, the saving reign of King Jesus. So how does biblical theology tell this story of the coming of the kingdom, this good news? Well, it does it this way. When God created the world, Adam and, Lee, Adam and Eve lived under the good reign of God. But their rebellion in the fall transferred them and transferred all of us from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of Satan, where death reigned, not life. But now through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated anew. Sin has been judged. It's been defeated. The church is now the, the, the realm where the Spirit of God reigns, bringing eternal life, the life of the kingdom to God's people. And, and we look forward to the day when that kingdom comes in all of its fullness at Christ's return, when all sin and all evil is finally and forever judged and everything is made new. And we can summarize this telling of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's an easy way of remembering the big storyline of the whole Bible which is giving this massive, life-changing, in, in, in so many ways, life-changing message of good news. This is good news. It is a grand story that makes sense of the brokenness that we see all around us. It's a story that, that gives dignity and meaning to human life now. It's, it's a story that points to real hope for the future. And discovering that story, and, and the fact that my life was taken up in that story, it, it made a huge difference for me. You, many of you have heard my own testimony and, and how God used this, this biblical theology gospel to keep me from walking away from the faith as something that was irrelevant. 
It was this grand story that introduced me to the idea of the lordship of Christ and that Christianity actually had bearing and meaning on my life now. It wasn't just something that saved me from my sins in the past and, and, and you know, gave me a promise of heaven in the future, a kind of fire insurance gospel. No, it was much bigger than that. And it, it, it encompassed my whole life. So I'm a big fan of the biblical theology gospel. But these days, a lot of evangelicals think that this is the only articulation of the gospel we need, or at least the main one. And they point to passages like Mark 1 that I read, Mark 1 verse 14, or, or Luke chapter 4 that we heard read this morning. They, they point to passages like that and they say, look, this is the way Jesus preached the gospel. He talked about bringing the kingdom. He talked about changing not just individual lives of their sin, but he talked about like changing power structures of injustice and setting the oppressed free. He, he talked about his lordship. And many evangelicals would suggest today that the gospel of forgiveness of sins through Christ's death on the cross is frankly, it's, it's just too small and narrow. In fact, uh, recently, uh, somebody told my wife that it wasn't even right to refer to that as the gospel. That's just the cross event. Now, the gospel is something actually much bigger than that. Now, it's true that in the New Testament, the word gospel is used in that, in that broad way that we see Jesus using it there in Mark chapter 1, referring to to all the promises that God has made to us in Christ. The promise of resurrection and reconciliation, not just with God, but, but with others. The, the promise of forgiveness of sins, but also sanctification. The promise of justice, the promise of glorification, the promise of the coming kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. It's true that the word gospel can, can refer to all that God is doing through Christ to reconcile all things to himself. Colossians 1 Verse 20. But here's the thing. Nowhere in the New Testament are the specific promises of like reconciliation with others or, or sanctification or, or glorification or, or the, the new heaven and the new earth, heaven, right? Nowhere are any of those specific things in the New Testament called the gospel. The blessings and hope of the kingdom are good news. The fact that the kingdom is coming is really good news for this broken cosmos. But it is bad news for someone like me, a sinner. It is bad news for someone like you. Because the coming of the kingdom Throughout the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, the coming of the kingdom means judgment. It means wrath on ungodliness, just as much as it means renewal and recreation. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, is not good news for me unless there's a way for me to be transferred out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. I need some more information. 
So how does the cosmic good news become the personal good news that we all have believed in? Well, that's, that's where we need the personal gospel of systematic theology. So what is the gospel? It is the cosmic gospel of biblical theology, but it is also the personal gospel of systematic theology. Paul describes this gospel for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. You can turn there. I'm going to read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Now, John, the Apostle John, explains the gospel without using the word gospel in, in John chapter 3. So, so flip back, if you want, to John chapter 3, verse 14. This is a mixture of Jesus speaking and then John the Apostle speaking. So for, we start off, Jesus is talking. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For anyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Well, that's John. P Peter describes it in First uh, Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, Peter says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And then skip, skipping down to, to verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. What is that word? Verse 25, this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Throughout the New Testament, whether we're looking at Jesus or, or the apostles, again and again, the, the apostles actually refer to the tradition 
or, or the teaching that has been handed down to them. Uh, that, that, that tradition or teaching, a, a known body of things, is understood as the content of the gospel. You, you can go and, and see this language being used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. You can look up these references later. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Or Jude 3. Again and again and again, the apostles refer to this body of teaching, this, this tradition, this content that must be preached so the gospel is a message that has a specific and defined content that can and must be communicated if people are to hear the message and believe. Now, in saying that the gospel has a content that's defined and known, I don't mean that there's like a magical set of words or precise formula. Or you've, got to, you've got to memorize these exact scripture references. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when we survey the preaching of the apostles and the teaching of the New Testament, I think we can sum up the content of the message of the gospel on the ground, this gospel that systematic theology tells that actually saves people. I think we can sum it up using four words. They're not the same four words as biblical theology. They're these four words, God, man, Christ, response. The gospel tells me something that I must understand and believe about each of those four words. I'm just going to run through them real quick. We'll start with God. The good news is not that God is love. The good news is not that God loves you. Though both of those statements are true. If you stop there, though, you've only told a partial truth about God. And you know what happens when a partial truth is presented as a whole truth, it becomes an untruth. God is love. But the scriptures are very clear that God is also holy and good. And we can't understand his love unless we understand it in light of his holiness. And we can't understand his holiness unless we understand it in light of his love. That God is a holy and loving God. That, that he made us to live under his authority, that he made us to bear his image. They made us to be in a relationship with him that is characterized by worship. This is the way Paul talks about it when, when he's beginning to explain the gospel in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, uh, let's see, beginning in verse 24, he says, to a bunch of pagans that don't know the Old Testament. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So we need to communicate something about God, that he has a character, that, that cannot finally be encompassed just by talking about love. We have to talk about holiness and goodness. 
that he made us, that he made us in his image, that we're under his authority, and that we're to be in a relationship with him. The gospel also tells us something about ourselves, about, about man. The good news is not that we're okay and God wants to be our friend. No, the good news has some bad news. It is that as his image bearers, we are endowed with, with extraordinary dignity and responsibility. And yet we have rebelled against God's rule. And as a result, we are both guilty because of what we have done and corrupted in who we are created to reign under God as his image bears, we are now condemned under his judicial wrath and there is nothing that we can do to fix it. I won't take the time, but you could go to Romans 3 and just read through the first half of Romans 3. Or you could go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at those first three verses. Talk about the fact that we are now dead in our sins, under God's wrath. But the gospel not only tells us something about God and something about ourselves, the gospel tells us something about Jesus Christ. The good news is not that Jesus will make your life better. It's that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and that he came to live the life that you should have, but didn't. And then he gave his perfect life as a substitute on the cross, enduring the death that you should deserve, deservedly endure, but can't. It's the news that God accepted that sacrifice, that Jesus got up from the dead and is now declared Lord and King. He has defeated sin and death. He now reigns from heaven and is returning again. And he commands everyone everywhere to submit to his Lordship. This is the way Jesus talked about himself and what he did. In Mark 10, 45, he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the way he described what he had to do. When, when it, at the end of, of Luke, you heard me preach on this just a few weeks ago. In, in Luke 24, he, he makes it very clear. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is what is written, he said. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the gospel tells us something about God, something about ourselves, something very important about Jesus. And then the gospel tells us what we should do with all that. It tells us how to respond. That the good news is not that we should now try to live as Jesus lived, but instead that we should repent of our sins and trust in his death and resurrection on our behalf. Paul pointed to the Thessalonian Christians as a model in how to respond to the message of the gospel. When in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, he says, look, everybody else is reporting what kind of reception we had from you how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The gospel not only tells us what God has done for us, it tells us how we must respond to what he's done. It's the good news that when we stop trying to save ourselves, but trust him instead, God will will do all of those things for us promised in the gospel, all of those benefits of forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption into his family. He will change us and someday glorify us, fitting us to live with him forever in heaven, reigning with him there in the new heavens and the new earth. Repentance and faith are therefore not a one-time event that I can do and walk away from and never think about again but rather the beginning of a relationship, an initial response that then works itself out in an ongoing life that has been transformed by the gospel and that continues to live out repentance and faith. Friends, this is the content of the gospel, the message that we must declare and that must be believed if anyone is to be saved and brought into that much bigger and grander story that the gospel of biblical theology tells. So what does this mean for us in our own evangelism? I want to offer three quick points of application and then I'm done. I've said we need to know both the content of the gospel and the context of the gospel. We don't need the prayer request quite yet. Go, go back to maybe application. There we go. Um, <laughs> um, I don't want to distract him. So if I know the content of the gospel, God, man, Christ response, and if I understand the context of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, then I am better equipped to recognize false, partial, or distorted gospels when they come along. And there are a lot of them. There's the Me Too gospel, right, that I've got to add something to what God has done, something that you're going to run into quite often with Roman Catholics, uh, with, with folks coming uh, out of a Muslim background. There, there's, there's the gospel of easy believes, believism that reduces faith to a one-time prayer and downplays repentance. You run into a lot of that in evangelical circles these days. There's the gospel of what would Jesus do which reduces Jesus to just an example for us to follow, something you find quite a bit in the justice movement. And of course, there's the prosperity gospel that says, if I believe, God will bless me with all of these things. That gospel is sweeping the world right now. Or there's just the meet them where they are gospel that emphasizes making Jesus really appealing, kind of smoothing off all the rough edges, don't talk about hell too much or dying to self. If that's not like white evangelicalism, I don't know what is these days. All of these are common. All of them are false. The better I know the gospel, the better I am at recognizing the counterfeits, even when they present themselves as the real thing. Second, if I know the content of the gospel, then, then I can kind of relax in my evangelism. I can be kind of, I can be certain that I'm going to be able to present the whole gospel regardless of where the conversation started, right? So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on an airplane and we're talking about how things are going in Portland today and somebody scratches their head and they say, yeah, but I just don't understand because I really believe people are basically good. Oh, that's a, that's a starting point. 
We're talking, we're talking about man. I'm kind of in the middle. I didn't start with God. We're, we're in man. And also we're in the fall, right? You, you know? And so I kind of know where I am. And I can begin to have a conversation. Or, or, or maybe I'm, I'm talking to somebody, especially here in Portland, and it's a conversation about, about spirituality and faith. They're, they're really into being spiritual. Oh, yeah, okay, I know where I am in the gospel. Uh, in, in part, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in creation because we're created as spiritual beings. In part, I'm dealing with a, a wrong understanding of how we respond, like what is faith, right? But the point is, I know where I am. And therefore, I know where I need to go and how to get there. And I'm not worried that we didn't start at the beginning. You see, if I know the whole gospel and it exists like a map in my head, I'm not like, you know, me driving across country, a slave to the GPS. And I don't really know where to go next unless I I stay on track and it kind of tells me the next step. No, I got a map in my head. And it doesn't matter where we are. I know how to orient myself and begin to have that conversation. Knowing the gospel is going to make you a lot more relaxed and a lot more confident in your evangelism. Third, knowing the gospel is going to keep me from presenting a partial gospel as if it's the whole gospel. It's going to keep me, it's going to protect me from presenting a distorted gospel. Because just like you, I deal with fear of man. I don't want people to dislike me. I don't want people to call me a fundamentalist. I don't want people to call me narrow and bigoted. I don't want all the same things that you don't want. And I'm just as tempted to trim my gospel and to make it more palatable as you are. But knowing the whole gospel helps me to remember, oh yeah, I got to talk about the hard parts too. I can't downplay the uncomfortable parts. Ultimately, we want to be clear and solid in our grasp of the content of the gospel and the context of the gospel because we want people to be saved. Paul makes it really clear in Romans 10 that those who confess the gospel with their mouths and believe with their hearts will be saved. But then he goes on to say, unless people hear this message and believe it and confess it, they will not be saved. Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about them? And how can they hear without a preacher? Faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Christianity is all about news. The very best news the world has ever heard. The enemy is doing everything he can to stop that message, to change it, to scramble it, to reinterpret it, to confuse it, to dilute it, and to distract us from it because he knows that he cannot defeat it. We need to know the gospel backwards and forwards, inside and out. We need to be comfortable. I loved what Kelly was talking about, getting more comfortable with it so it doesn't seem so awkward. We need to be at home inside the gospel message because the gospel, the word of the cross, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, is the power of God to us who are being saved. 